Good evening. Standing room only. <laughs> and it's funny because nobody watching online can see how many people are in here. So, it's all right. Can you scoot over so more people can sit over there? <laughs> all right. Thank you all for being here tonight. Um, we had intended to have Bubba finishing up, wrapping up his uh, study on the priesthood of the believer. Um, he had to be out of town this week, so I'm going to do an introduction for a new series that we're going to do, and then when he comes back next week, he'll wrap that up, and then we'll start into the new series. So we'll do the intro this week. Um, and so I want to start a series on the fruit of the Spirit, um, taken, of course, from uh, a passage of Scripture in Galatians chapter 5. And I, I haven't done an in-depth study on those, uh, and I thought it would be uh, an important and timely endeavor here at the beginning of a new year, maybe, for us to talk about and think about the fruits of the Spirit and um, the role those play in our lives and how we should be exhibiting those from day to day. Um, and the passage in Galatians uh, mentions the fruit of the Spirit in contrast with the works of the flesh. Uh, but Paul doesn't go into detail in those verses about each of the fruits. He mentions what they are, but he doesn't go in, in depth into what that means, what each of them means for us. Uh, so we'll take them and have to search the Scriptures for more information on each of those fruits of the Spirit. And I think it will be important um, not only to study each of the fruits of the Spirit from the whole of Scripture, but also to take a look at the context of the Galatians 5 passage and how all the fruits of the Spirit apply to the Christian life as a group as well. Okay, so we want to look at them individually in this, in this series, um, but, but looking at the Galatians 5 passage, we'll have a, a better context of how those should apply as a, a group of Christian virtues. Um, and that's what Paul is writing about here in Galatians 5 when he pits the spirit against the flesh. Uh, so tonight I want to do an introduction which includes Paul's use of the fruits of the spirit as a group. And then next time um, that we come together after Bubba's teaching, we'll start going through each of those fruits of the spirit that are in the, in the Galatians 5 passage individually for a few weeks. Um, so tonight uh, is intro to the next study. Um, and the week after that, the week after Bubba comes, then we'll start picking up the fruit, so to speak. Uh, let's look at Galatians 5 together. We'll read that passage out, um, just two verses, and then we'll have a word of prayer. And so I want to look at Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you there in the pew rack. Verses 22, 23, Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this night. Thank you, Lord, even though it's raining, sometimes snowing, we can come together and gather in a nice warm building. Uh, thank you for all the kids that were here singing with us. Uh, I pray, Lord, that they will, their hearts will be drawn to you as they attend um, the, the children's program here, that they will know you more, Lord. Thank you for all those adults who have 
stuck around and to be part of this study. I pray, Lord, that as we open your word tonight, you would speak to our hearts, you would give us understanding, give us a desire to um, keep in step with the Spirit in our lives. Lord, that we will desire these Christian virtues that we'll see, uh, that they will not only be something that we want to exhibit, but that with your help, Father, um, by your grace, where we will uh, live them out more and more in the midst of this world and with the people that we come into contact with. All, Father, to bring honor and glory to your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, I think when we think about the fruit of the Spirit, we uh, most often think of this passage of Scripture in Galatians 5. If someone mentions to you the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 usually, usually comes to mind. I also think we quite often come to it and read it independently of its full context. I think we, we go to those two verses, we read those two verses, and take what we can from it, but we can miss some things if we don't have the broader context. Uh, and mostly what I mean by that is that we, we miss some things about applying this passage to our lives. Uh, we sometimes miss that Paul makes a stark contrast between these godly fruits and the works of the flesh. That is all part of this Galatians 5 passage. So if we just go to those two verses, those are good verses, but we miss the, that contrast there. Um, and so I think that's important. He also makes a strong point in the passage about how those who are in Christ will walk by the Spirit, and not only that, but they will keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, these, these aren't just suggestions for better living, not a self-help manual. Uh, these are commands for proper Christian living and are not optional. So we want to look at the larger context here tonight, and then uh, we get into each fruit individually. Uh, we'll be able, Lord willing, to remember to come back and apply it to our lives with this passage. So hopefully by the time we're done, when someone mentions the fruit of the Spirit or you think about what the fruits of the Spirit are, maybe you'll come back to this passage and, and remind yourself what all that God has said about it and make sure it's, it's contrasting with, with uh, other parts of your life that, that the works of the flesh are less and less in your life. So let's get a little background here first. So we're going to have some context and we're going to kind of build up to um, the fruit of the Spirit. I want to see what has Paul been writing about as, through this whole letter, really. Um, the who, what, where, and why of this letter that Paul wrote um, somewhere right after 49 to 55 AD, um, quite a long time ago. Uh, and it's thought to be, the, the book of Galatians, this letter that he wrote is thought to be one of the earliest, if not the earliest, book of the New Testament, chronologically speaking. Um, unlike other, other letters from Paul, he wrote many letters, but unlike those, this was not written to a specific person or to an individual church. Okay, this letter, Galatia was a, a province, um, not a city, not a town. Um, so in this smaller region of the province of Galatia, there were several churches in different cities. Um, you, can, you can think of Galatia like you might think of the distances between Redding and Grenada, or Weed and Wairika, or McLeod. Um, you know, we, we can kind of visualize it that way. If, if you've lived around here for any amount of time, you kind of know how, how far apart those things are. And that's basically what we're talking about. 
So the 13th and 14th chapters of the book of Acts mention four cities that Paul visited on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. Um, cities like Antioch, um, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. Uh, these are mentioned uh, and are cities Paul ministered the gospel in and churches were started there. Um, and even though he doesn't mention in this letter to the Galatians, uh, even though he doesn't mention a particular church by name, uh, we know that Paul wrote this letter to these churches collectively. Okay, so in, if you start in Galatians 1, verse 2, it says, to the churches in Galatia, plural. Okay, so it's not to a person, not to one individual church, but he's writing to the churches. So this letter was intended to be shared among all of those churches, so they would all get this message, which also informs us that the problems that Paul is addressing here were problems in all of these churches, not just one of the churches. Um, it was sort of a regional problem. So these are places, again, that are not long distances from each other, um, 19 miles between um, Lystra and Iconium, about 85 miles between Antioch and Iconium, um, roughly 30 miles between Derby and Lystra. So, you know, you get that picture in your mind of how far that is. Of course, they don't have cars, so I don't know how long it would take to walk from Weed to Wairika, but, uh, you know, we don't typically choose to do that because we have cars. <laughs> so things were a lot different back then. But, but Paul traveled there initially and then went back through these places later on. After these churches were started, he, he wanted to go back through there to encourage and um, strengthen the brethren as he went through and continued teaching them and to check on their progress. And many of Paul's hardships, I mean, we know he had a lot of hardships in life. Many of them came in these kinds of places at the hands of angry Jews who followed him around. They would follow him to the different cities he would go to and Sometimes he's beaten and, and left for dead, among other things. Um, but Paul had a lot of love for all the churches that he ministered to. And you can see that through all his letters when he's writing to people and churches. He has a deep, deep love for the church, um, for believers. And so he also, with that, has a deep concern for uh, times when maybe they're not living as Christians should or they're struggling with immorality or treating each other poorly. Um, or in the case of this letter, more importantly, believing a false gospel. Um, so it's interesting, in most of Paul's letters to individual churches, he's, uh, he has quite a long greeting in most of his letters that he writes. Then he has some encouraging words for them. He encourages them and tells them about how he prays for them. He's thankful to the Lord for them and for their partnership in the gospel uh, even if those churches that he's writing to have problems that Paul has to address in, the, address in those letters, and he does, still there's this tone of love and patience that he has with those churches. In this letter, we know Paul loves the churches. We know he loves all the churches here in Galatia um, that he's writing to, but he seems to not want to beat around the bush in this letter. He wants to get right to the point in this letter, to the churches in Galatia. He, he doesn't write like he does in his other letters here. And perhaps it's because of the seriousness of their problems, the seriousness of what they're dealing with. And so this is not just um, bad behavior. Um, people's eternities are at stake. I mean, that's kind of how you have to look at it. Uh, because of false teaching. They're, and not only is there false teaching there, they're believing it. People are believing it. 
So he immediately, in this letter, uh, if you're looking in chapter 1, he immediately rebukes these churches for their apparent abandonment of the true gospel or a gospel of works of the flesh. Okay, Where he says to other churches in his opening remarks, I thank God for you whenever I think of you, um, I pray for you here. He lays this on them in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. How's that for getting right to the point? He's, he's not beating around the bush. This is a very serious thing. And, it, and so serious, he's, he says he's astonished by it. This shouldn't be happening. So this letter starts off this way, and he continues with deeply important subject matter all throughout this letter. Paul has, he has to defend himself in this letter. He has to defend himself um, as an apostle of Christ because the pe- people have been lied to about who he is, about his credentials. Uh, they knew him. He ministered there. But after he leaves, people come in and say, no, this is who he is. He's not, a, he's not an apostle. He's this or that. And they start teaching other things, and there's confusion. Um, and more importantly than that, he has to defend the gospel against the, attack, the attacks of the Judaizers. And he isn't writing here directly to the false teachers, but to the churches because they're buying what the false teachers are selling. Okay, And that's why he's astonished at those who are, what he said, deserting Christ. So there are some major themes that we'll see in, in this letter to the churches in Galatia. Themes like false gospels, um, uh, being set free in Christ, and spirit and flesh. These are pretty major themes in this letter. Uh, And these themes are woven throughout this letter. And so they don't jump back and forth, but you can see they'll be mentioned in one place, they'll be mentioned again later, and they're all kind of tied together. Um, So I want to take a look at some of these themes to help us with the context of this letter. And I I know this is a study about the fruits of the Spirit. I just want to remind you, we'll get to them when we get started with the series, but this is basically intro. It's giving us some background for... Uh, building up to why he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. So along with those themes, I want to talk about those three themes. And the first one was false gospels. So I want to talk about, about that. Um, so he says in Galatians 1.7, and basically we're going to be in Galatians tonight. So we'll be flipping back and forth in the book of Galatians. We're not going to be spreading out to a bunch of different places. Um, so Galatians chapter 1, verse 7, he's talking to them about a false gospel and he says, not that there is another one, another one meaning another gospel, okay? Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Okay, right away in this letter, he's dealing with this subject of false gospel. Um, so I have a question, and it's been a while since we met. Remember, if we ask questions, you guys are free to answer, okay? A little interaction here. Um, so my first question is, what is the false gospel they're believing? If you had to put it in a nutshell through the whole book, what, it, what would be, how would you verbalize that, the, the false gospel that they're believing? Okay. So ultimately, some have departed the faith to believe a false gospel of salvation by works. If you could, if you could sum it all up, I mean, he gets specific, and we'll talk about that. But basically, if you sum it all up, the false gospel here is a gospel of works, salvation by works. Um, and so he, he has to severely uh, rebuke that and correct that. 
Paul calls them works of the flesh or works of the law. Okay? The idea be- being that a person is or can be saved by obedience to the law of God. And this is not true. Uh, so telling someone this is how they are saved leaves them in their sin, leaves them trusting in themselves or the flesh uh, in order to be right with God. And if you've read any amount of Scripture, you know that this is false, um, though it is widely believed. So another question, what do we sometimes think about the false, the false gospels that some people believe? There are a lot of false gospels out there that we can probably think of. What do we sometimes think about those in general? Maybe not even with words, but maybe by just by our apathy. We can think they're no big deal. Right, the false gospel, they believe this. Yeah, you know, that's them. No big deal. Uh, maybe we think it's just a point of difference that we have with them. Uh, you know, again, that's what they believe. This is what I believe. That's okay for them. Um, but is that the stance we should take as Christians? That there are other gospels? Not if we take a lesson from what Paul wrote in this letter. He, he took it very seriously. And remember, he was astonished that they had so quickly departed. Right? And chapter 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right? It, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who has bewitched you, he says. And then in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Right? It's like, I'm afraid I'm, I, all the teaching I've done, everything, and you said you believed it, that may be for nothing. Maybe you're not even believers. Okay? He said he was in anguish over them in this, in this letter. And in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 20, he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Again, very serious. And you can see in his wording and the things he says how much he loves these people and how concerned he is that they would be believing a false gospel. It's bad enough that it's the, gospel is being, the false gospel is being proclaimed. It's worse that they're believing it. So he keeps coming back to statements like this uh, throughout the letter because, honestly, he can't believe what they're falling for. He can't believe that they're, that they're believing this, this different gospel. Um, but this is not just about two different and, and legitimate ways of thinking. Okay? We have to be clear on that. Can you, if you've read through Galatians um, in the past, maybe you can remember, but can you think of a statement Paul makes in this letter somewhere uh, that indicates how serious it is to teach or believe a false gospel or a distorted gospel? Oh, maybe it's been a while since you read it. <laughs> okay, so we see right away, again, it's so early on in this letter, Galatians 1, uh, verses 8 and 9. If you turn there, you can see with me um, how this statement that Paul makes, how serious the false gospel is. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. And verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, you, we can see in there that he's told them this before. Uh, it, it seems that 
Perhaps when he was there ministering to them, he told them the true gospel and said, don't believe a false gospel. Don't believe anyone that tells you anything different. Because he says in verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a different gospel, contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Anathema is the word that Paul used here for accursed. Anathema. And it's a reference to that which is devoted to destruction. Okay, he, he is saying that the person doing this is damned or accursed. Okay, not to be believed, but left to the wrath of God for destruction. That's how serious he is about this false gospel. Um, I mean, that's a very serious proclamation that he's making. And this also doesn't leave the one believing this false teaching in any better shape. Unless, that is, they repent and trust in Christ as their Savior for salvation. Right? So he reminds them of the true gospel throughout this letter to call them back to sanity. He asks them rhetorical questions in this letter. Like in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? or by hearing with faith? He knows the answer to the question. This is a rhetorical question. And then the next, very next verse, chapter 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, he's, he's getting at this, this attempt at combining works of the flesh for salvation with uh, the, the works of the Spirit. Um, and, and with faith itself. So, again, thinking of the letter to the Galatians, if you've read it before, what is one major point of contention in this letter, one specific example of a work of the flesh that they were believing that Paul had to refute? Do you think of one? There's sort of a main one. Yeah, that would be circumcision. Okay, he has to deal with this topic of circumcision. We see it, it was a problem in these churches because Paul had to address it in this letter. The way he addresses it in this letter tells you this is a, a problem. It's part of the big problem they're having. Okay? They, they had begun to believe that Gentile Christians had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Okay? In other words, some Jews were teaching this and confusing people, and they were called Judaizers. If you want to be a Christian, you have to go be circumcised. Okay. In Galatians 2, we see Paul writing about events that took place at the Jerusalem Council, and those events are recorded in Acts 15. But here in Galatians chapter 2, he's actually referring to what took place during that time. Um, they were dealing with this subject there in the Jerusalem Council. So here in this letter to the Galatians, he used that as an example of how he had fought for the true gospel, for the truth of the gospel in the face of what he called false brothers, Okay, speaking of this time at the council, he said this in Galatians 2, verses 3 through 5. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay? So see, he had to, he had to fight against this. Not some swords and all that kind of stuff. 
fighting with the truth, fighting the lies with the truth, refuting these what he called false brothers, okay, people who claimed to be Christians and they were not. They were bringing a false gospel. Uh, and you and I should take a lesson here as well on the, on the idea and desire to preserve the truth of the gospel in our day. There are plenty of false gospels in our day. Um, and the gospel is and has always been under attack. So he brings up this topic of circumcision early on in Galatians, and then he comes back to it at the beginning of chapter 5. And between chapters 2 and 5, Paul doesn't explicitly mention circumcision, but I believe it is the sort of the underlying work of the flesh that he's attacking. Okay, he brings it up, and he spends a lot of time talking about works of the flesh um, in the light of that, and then he brings it up again in chapter 5, like, like bookends. Um, he has a lot to say in the middle of it. Um, though we know Paul's words attacking this practice are the specific focus here, really, circumcision, it was the problem they were dealing with, we should understand that the prohibition against trusting in works of the flesh um, would hold true for any false practice that's held up as something meriting God's favor. Okay, so it doesn't have to be circumcision. If there's anything that someone's teaching or believing that is supposedly brings, gives you favor before God or merits your salvation because you did a certain thing, that is a false gospel. Um, so the second of the themes I want to look at is this idea of being set free in Christ. Um, Paul clearly says the practice of circumcision brings one away from freedom in Christ and into slavery. Okay, if that's what you're holding to, you're going back into slavery. All human beings who come to Christ are set free from dead works. Okay, we see that in the scriptures. They're, they're not to view obedience to the law as a means of salvation, but as something that teaches us we need salvation. That's what the law is. It's, scripture calls it a, a tutor or a schoolmaster. Right? The law of God, it, 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 the standard is so high, we cannot keep it. It's meant to show us that we are sinners, that we need salvation. Not to say, obey all these things and you will be saved because you've obeyed them. Okay, so we have to understand that. In chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. They're not standing firm right now. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, don't go back. You're going back. Don't do it. Why? According to the end of verse 2 there in chapter 5, why? Why not go back? What do we learn about that at the end of, chapter, of verse 2? What was that? Are you talking about the end of verse 2? Yeah, so at the end of verse 2, uh, he makes a very important statement. If you're accepting circumcision as a means of salvation, Christ will be of no advantage to you. What does it mean that Christ will be of no advantage to a person? If someone asks you that, what does that mean? That Christ would be of no advantage to a person. How would you answer that? 
No salvation. Okay, what else? Absolutely not. They're not a child of God. I mean, there's nothing more important than your sins being forgiven, than eternal life with Christ, than, than Christ's sacrifice of himself on the cross to atone for your sin. All the things that we read in Scripture about what Christ accomplished in his sinless life, in his death, in his resurrection, and all that that's for by the grace of God will not be of any advantage if you hold to works of the flesh somehow bring about salvation. That's very, very serious. You can see why Paul is so concerned that they're believing a false gospel. He doesn't want Christ to be of no advantage to them. Christ is everything. He is the, the only hope. Chapter 5, verse 4, he says it this way, You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Again, notice the seriousness of this truth. It is, it's nothing to be played with or even tolerated in the church. Paul said you are severed from Christ. You are cut off. Grace is not applied to you. You cannot hold to the law and receive grace. Okay, the, the call of the gospel is to turn from and let go of your own efforts at salvation and cling to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Some in the church, that he's writing, the churches that he's writing to here may have begun to believe the false teaching about circumcision. Some have probably gone all the way to believing it, thereby proving they are not, they never were children of God. But they could not accuse Paul of being the one who taught it. Paul did not bring that gospel to them. He did not bring that message to them. Paul even went as far as to ask them to use a bit of logic, a bit of logical thinking in order that they should see this false gospel uh, is certainly not coming from him. And look what he says in chapter 5, verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Okay, this is a good question. It's a serious question. First of all, he's, he's saying, if I still preach circumcision, what does that tell you? He used to preach it. Right? That used to be a part of what he taught. Right? Remember, he, Paul was Saul. He was a Pharisee, very knowledgeable in the Old Testament scriptures, um, but not a believer until Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus and, and saved him, opened his eyes to the truth. Right? So he no longer holds to any of that. So he's asking this very, actually a very easy question to answer, and it should make them think. Right? It, if I... But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Good question. His point is that he is being persecuted all the time for the true gospel. Right? If he preached circumcision, the Jews would agree with him. They, they wouldn't be out chasing him and, and trying to kill him. But he doesn't agree with them. He doesn't teach this false gospel, so they persecute him. And so he's saying to them, think about it for a minute. Whatever their accusations are, or if they say, this gospel came from me too, or this is what Paul teaches also to try to confuse them, he's saying, no, this did not come from me. And then he reminds them again in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. 
Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Okay, now that verse is connected to the theme of freedom in Christ uh, that we already talked about, and the last of our themes for the evening, uh, spirit and flesh. Okay, it's connected to both of them, that, that one verse. Okay, this is the theme that encompasses, as we'll see, our study in the fruit of the Spirit. Paul deals with this theme by contrasting the two. Okay, basically, there are works of the flesh, or things we do in the flesh that are sinful and have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. Um, Paul even gives a big list of the sins that we commit in the flesh. He doesn't leave us hanging there or leave us to try to wonder, I wonder what he's talking about. Okay, let's, let's look at both lists that he gives first by reading um, the larger passage of Scripture around our verses that, are, that have the fruit of the Spirit. But let's turn to Galatians 5 and read verses 16 through 25. Okay? And you'll see both lists, both contrasting lists in here. Um, verse 16 through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, bits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so the, at the beginning of verse 16, that first word there, but, he says, but I say. And that, the but there in verse 16 ties this statement back to what Paul said in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And then verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see the connection there between those. He's drawing your attention there. So when Paul talked about not using freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, he means not to gratify the sinful desires of the flesh. Don't seek to indulge the sins you want to commit. Don't seek to indulge those. Don't make a way to do those and don't do those. In other words, you're not saved by obedience to the law, but by the grace of God apart from the law. You are free from striving in the law because it cannot save you anyway. But that doesn't translate to, I can do whatever I want then. I don't have to obey the law because that's not what saves me anyway. So I'll sin as much as I want to, and God's grace will cover me. Have any of you ever heard somebody talk that way, that I'm saved by the grace of God, 
not by obedience to the law, so I can sin here and God will forgive me. I mean, maybe you have family members or friends that, that think that. Uh, but that just portrays the attitude of someone who's, who's not a believer. Otherwise, they would know, no, I can't, I can't do that. That's why Christ went to the cross. He died for my sin, not so that I could keep doing it. Um, it's, it's a convenient lie for sinful and cunning people, right? We try to convince ourselves, I'm okay in my sin. God will save me by his grace. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Um, again, this is Paul. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so, so he crushes that idea. That thought of I can sin, I'm okay because it's not obedience to the law that saves me anyway. Okay, he just he destroys that that argument. Okay, um, he completely refutes the the misguided logic of people holding to that way of thinking. It's not the message that he's sending here. And verses 16 and following are the answer to the problem of this thinking. And more importantly, they are the answer for the Christian to understand that he or she is to live a certain way. We're to live as Christians. And God has not only given you uh, the instruction on how to do so, but the power to do so as Christians. Okay, Again, we see a stark and extremely clear contrast being laid out before us in order to understand what's going on in our lives. Okay, that's why these verses can make sense to us. We see these lists. He doesn't just leave it at some vague statement, he gives us a list of all these things. As we read that list and we hear those things that are against the Spirit of God, it should hit us in our conscience. Right? We should see ourselves in these. We know that we commit these sins. And, and we cannot say they are not sins. Um, so to lay the groundwork for the fruit of the Spirit, Paul tells it how it is in Galatians 5, verse 17. Says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, there's, there's a complete and abiding opposition here. Okay, the flesh, that is our sinful desires, are completely, totally, and forever opposed to the desires of the spirit. And we cannot find a way to bring them together and have them coexist in some sort of agreement. It's like oil and water. Okay? They do not go together. They do not mix. And first of all, the spirit that Paul is talking about here is not your spirit. Okay? It is the spirit of God. In other words, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit of God. And that is how we're to understand this. If, if you... If you found out someone <clears throat> was doing things on purpose because they were opposed to you and they were doing it to keep you from doing what you wanted to do, that would almost always be taken as a bad or a negative thing. I think we could see that. Um, is that how we're to take this statement from Paul? No. <clears throat> what does Paul mean when he says these are opposed to each other and uh, to keep you from doing what you want to do? What does he mean by that? To keep you from doing what you want to do. Again, that sounds like a bad thing. But what does he mean by that? Well, it's actually a good thing. 
Okay, this, this statement is a, not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. In our context with other people, if someone were to say that, we'd be think that would be a bad thing. But here it's actually a good thing. The Spirit of God knows the desires of your flesh are sinful. So to help keep you from sinning, his desires are all completely opposed to the sinful things you want to do. The Spirit of God convicts and convinces the believer's heart of sin and, and through your conscience won't allow you to sin without feeling the pain of doing what is opposed to God. So he says to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Okay, and Paul of all people struggle with this. In Romans 7, he lays out a whole statement about how he struggles. He, he does the things he doesn't want to do, and he doesn't do the things he wants to do, and it's this horrible battle raging within him that he describes, and we can all relate. Okay, so but this is to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Not to keep you from doing the godly things, and that's not what he's talking about, not to keep you from doing the good works that God has prepared for you to do um, as believers, not for salvation, but as a result of salvation. Okay, so not talking about those, but to keep you from sinning. Okay, it's the conscience informed by the Spirit. It's at this point that someone would begin to ask the questions then, what are the desires of the flesh? I want to know what they are so I can avoid them. What else does a believer ask uh, why else does a believer ask this question? Well, because they're led by the Spirit. Not their own spirit, again, but the Spirit of God. Okay? Unbelievers don't ask this question. They don't think about the Spirit and the flesh. They're not concerned about doing things uh, that are opposed to God. Okay? But the believer wants to know. The believer wants to ask, I want to know what are the desires of the flesh so I can avoid them. Okay? Um, and so Paul says as much in the next verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Okay? Believers are to be led by the Spirit of God. Not as if you're a robot, um, but empowered by knowledge and ability through the Spirit of God. Okay? All believers have the Spirit of God indwelling them. Uh, this is why uh, we see Paul say uh, in Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's not doing it on, in his own strength. Okay? He's trusting in the Spirit of God to empower him to do what is right, uh, what, what agrees with God, with, with what is not opposed to the Spirit. And, and we, have, we have responsibility in this. We're not uh, pulled along, but, but now have the desire and ability to obey God, whereas we did not have this uh, before we were born again. In that case, before we were born again, we were at enmity with God, the Bible says, which means we were actively opposed to God when we were unbelievers. And there's that language again, opposed. There's this opposition between the spirit and the flesh. Okay, so we engage in this battle. We're not bystanders. You know, we don't sit back and, and float around. Uh, we are engaged in this battle because temptations come. Our flesh is constantly trying to get us to sin and do things we shouldn't do. Um, but by the power of, of the Holy Spirit indwelling us and through the knowledge of his word and what is, what is sinful, what is not sinful, um, and he convicts us of that, and he 
empowers us to now fight against that. Okay, the scripture says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There's a resistance there. We don't, we're not passive. Um, so, um, so yes, we're engaged in this battle, and that's really what it ends up being, right? This, this battle of our flesh always being opposed to the Spirit of God. So in Christ, we must be actively involved in putting off the old person, putting on the new. Okay, we are, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. How can you, how can I uh, be actively involved in that unless we know what must be put off? I have to know what are the things I do or say or think that are sinful things. I need to get rid of those. We can't just not know. Um, there are things we can convince ourselves that aren't sin. We can convince ourselves that they're not sin, but the Bible says they are. We see this in our culture all the time. Okay, so we have to read the scriptures. It's the word of God, so we know what God says is sinful, and then I need to agree with him, and I need to get rid of that in my life. Okay? Um, so Paul gives this instruction about the differences between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The whole letter has led up to this point and to why we want to study the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Not just to know the list, what are the... What are the fruit of the Spirit in the list so I can say the list? I want to know what each one really means. How does each one of those fruits of the Spirit actually look in my life? Okay? Um, and we can sort of act like we don't know what sinful things are, but we do. Paul says as much uh, here in this passage. Uh, he says it's evident we know what the works of the flesh are. We just like to do them. Okay. Um, looking at chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, he's, he has a list there. Now the works of the flesh are evident. See, there it is. We know it. We know what they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay? So, uh, now this isn't going to be a study on the works of the flesh where we're going to go and talk about all those things, though that we could. That would be a, another study all of its own. Uh, but we're going to be focusing on the fruit of the Spirit. But here's the list. He gives, gives us the list. And all of these things are those desires of the flesh that are opposed to the Spirit of God. And it's quite a list. Uh, and we should note that this list isn't even everything. Um, this, these aren't all the things that, ways in which people sin and oppose the Spirit of God. When he ends the list in verse 21, um, he names the last three works of the flesh and then includes anything and everything else there is, basically. Uh, in, in 521, at the end of that, he says, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. So clearly there's more things. There's more things like those. Uh, that are on that list. Okay? Again, these are not just mistakes. Uh, they are sins that keep unrepentant people out of the kingdom of God. He ends that there by saying, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They can't be combined. Okay? We can't hold on to our sin and say we're in Christ. Um, the Christian, the born-again believer, doesn't want that sin. They may struggle with it, 
but they're not going to try to bring it with them. That brings us to the good news about the work of the Spirit of God within us. Okay, those who are in Christ, led by the Spirit of Christ, will not walk in the way of gratifying the desires of the flesh. The Christian can know what the desires of the Spirit are also. He gives us a list there. Okay, so when we talk about the Christian will not walk in the way of gratifying the desires of the flesh, that doesn't mean that the Christian is perfect. It doesn't mean that the Christian never sins. That word there, the Christian doesn't walk, okay, this is describing our daily life, our pattern of life. It is not the pattern for a believer to continue in sin in an unrepentant way. So it's saying that's not a believer, that doesn't describe a believer. Might a believer fall to sin in, at a certain time and in certain ways? Yes, but what does the believer do? The believer knows it, the believer hates it, the believer repents, confesses, has restoration with God, and remembers my sin is forgiven and doesn't want to do that anymore. We try to kill that sin in our lives. The unbeliever embraces it, wants to do it, keeps doing it. Okay, So that's what we mean when we talk about the, you've heard that term, the Christian walk. That's what we're talking about. The pattern of life, the pattern of life for a believer is not gratifying the desires of the flesh. Okay? It is not perfection. And again, even saying that is not an excuse to go, oh, well, I guess I can sin. I don't, I don't have to be perfect. God's standard is still righteous perfection. Okay, so we need to kill those sins, keep striving to be obedient to the word of God, but we know Christ lived the sinless life that we couldn't live. We have the righteousness of Christ, his sinlessness that covers us. Um, so the Christian can know what the desires of the Spirit are also. Okay, we've seen a list of the works of the flesh. Um, it, so we ask the question, if I should not live that way, how should I live? If I shouldn't do those things, what are the things I should do? What is it that pleases God? Maybe I should understand what those things are as a Christian. And that's why we want to study, that's what we want to study in this series. Okay? We don't um, want to just know what the list is. We want to know what uh, know that we are empowered by the Spirit of God to live by them, to live by the things on that list. Not only can uh, the believer and should the believer um, uh, or should these fruits of the Spirit be present in our lives, they will be in a greater and greater measure in our lives as we grow and mature in our Christian walk. And this is possible because the Lord is sanctifying us in Jesus Christ. He's making us more like Christ and setting us apart from the world. What does that look like? Well, look at what Paul says in, in chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. He has the list of the fruits, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Um, by the Spirit, not under the law. Okay, so... Um, I know that there are different translations out there, so some of those words might be different in your copy of the Bible, right? So when we get into these, we'll talk about talk about those. Those are how the different translators have translated the, the Greek word that was used there. It doesn't mean there's a, a problem or something's wrong. Okay, so there are, there are nine qualities or 
virtues here that the Spirit of God, when we think about the Spirit of God, He perfectly exhibits these things. Okay? God is perfect. Um, you uh, and I don't do so perfectly. We want to increase more and more in being like Christ and, and living like Christ, but we are not going to do so here on this side of eternity. But not only uh, these, but like the negative list, the fruit of the Spirit is not limited to these nine things either. Okay, this is just this is just the list that Paul gives. It's not an exhaustive list, uh, and you know the the Spirit, meaning the Spirit of God, doesn't empower you to do other godly things or tell you you must do other godly things. Um, there are more things. This is just the list that Paul gives here. He said, against such things, there is no law. Um, there are more things that could be added to this, this list. They're all found in the pages of Scripture. Right? Things like forgiveness. We are commanded to be forgiving. Forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Okay? We can only do that through the power of the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Okay? Uh, graciousness. Things like that. Um, so, in this study, we want to explore these godly Christian virtues. See them in the list there, those nine things. We want to break them down, learn what they are, so we'll take them one at a time. That'll be what our series is, so we'll have one a week that we'll talk about in depth and look at what what the Scriptures say about that, not just um, Paul and Galatians. Because uh, like I said, in the Galatians passage, he doesn't really break down what like what love is. Okay? It doesn't break down what patience is or self-control. They're all important virtues. Um, so we'll explore those things. Um, we, we know that we are to practice them, but what do they really mean? What do they really look like in our daily lives and, and in our interactions with other people? How do I apply those things? I can read the list and think, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I try to do that. But we don't necessarily think about it in the moment when we're interacting with someone. Maybe we're having a negative interaction. Maybe the virtue or the fruit of the Spirit of self-control might be helpful in that moment, and perhaps we're not good at exhibiting that, that self-control. Okay, So these are the things we want to talk about. What does this look like in our daily lives? I don't want it just to be a word on a page, but maybe we can help open our eyes a little bit and see the areas and the people in our lives that God has given us to give us opportunities to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. And remembering there are that we are someone in other people's lives that they probably have to use a little self-control with as well because, you know, we're not, we are not perfect people, okay? Um, so don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Um, so do we, do we have to do these things? Do we have to exhibit these things? Yes. If you are, if you and I are Christians, not just claiming to be Christians, but if you and I are truly born-again believers, this is a command. We must conduct our lives in this way. We must conduct our lives by this list and all the other things in Scripture that we see that would be fruits of the Spirit. There's no law against these things. These are, these are how we should live. Paul says in, in verse 25 of this very chapter, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, the Spirit of God walks a certain way. We should walk the same way. We should look the same. 
should act the same. We should treat people the same. We shouldn't depart from that. We get this image in our mind of, you know, soldiers lined up and marching, all perfectly in sync, legs moving at the same time, arms moving at the same time. If you've seen anybody do these things, it's actually quite impressive. That's this picture we have of walking in step with the Spirit. Okay? And that's, that's what we're called to do as Christians. So we need to look at what these are and look more deeply at uh, how they impact our lives and how either doing them or not doing them impacts other people's lives as well. And by God's grace, we will do so because uh, we certainly need his help. So let's close in prayer tonight. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word and thank you for the, uh, all these words that Paul has written um, to the churches in Galatia. Lord, they are not just for them, they are for us as well. Pray you would encourage us by them, Lord. Pray that you would um, Lord, spark our interest in not just reading a list of words, but studying your word to find out what does it mean for me to love others? What does it mean for me to be patient? And Father, I pray you would not only give us the desire to do so, but think, thinking of and thanking you for the indwelling Holy Spirit who brings us to understanding of your word, and not only that, empowers us to live in a way in which we could not live prior to our saving grace being applied to our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. Praise you for it. Help us to be joyful as Christians, Lord. Help us to joyfully want to exhibit these virtues uh, that are so Christ-like. Uh, help us, Lord, with these things. Reveal to us the areas where we are not living by the fruit of the Spirit, and, and help us to change, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.